In this episode, I chat with one of the best birders that I know, Joshua Olszewski. In a previous episode, Joshua smashed a scientific bird name challenge. In this episode, I challenge him with a bird information challenge. We will also hear about his guiding experiences and a recent trip that he did to Israel. As always with Joshua, we tap into his encyclopedic knowledge of birds and intricate ID features. Westermans is running a wild bird competition. When you buy a Westermans Wild Bird 10kg limited edition pack, you get two collectible cards. And in addition to collecting the Wild Bird cards, you'll stand the chance to win amazing prizes worth over 100,000 Rand, including a pair of Swarovski EL 10x42 HD binoculars valued at 45,000 Rand. The competition runs until the 31st of August and you can find more details at www.com. Westermans.co.za. Westermans, for the love of birds. My name is Adam, and this proudly South African podcast is your weekly source of news about birds, birders, destinations, conservation, gear, books, and anything that we think birders want to hear about. So, welcome to the show. Let's dive into this week's episode of the Birding Life Podcast. So I've got Josh back on the Birding Life podcast. Uh, really cool to chat to him again. Last time we had such a cool chat. We did the uh, the the scientific bird name challenge, and he owned it. I think you got like four out of five, or four and a half out of five. So Josh, it's good to have you back on the show. Thank you, Adam. Thank you so much for having me. It's really, really great to be back on the podcast. So last time you were on the show, I was trying to remember. Um, I was trying to remember what your life list was on. We can talk about your updated life list in a moment now. But I remember that time you were, I think you were busy doing your field guide studies and uh, I think you were getting ready to go up to Zululand or something, something like that. Um, that was probably about a year and a half, two years ago. So give us the short update of how life has been since then and what what the birding has looked like. I mean, it's been a long time. Um, are there any, in the last year or so, any notable memories that stand out? Um, yeah, sure. Thanks, Adam. So, yeah, I think I completed my guiding studies um, around about 2021, I think. Uh, I did my uh, Fagaza level one practical and theory and, um, yeah, along with all the other admin shenanigans that come along with registering to be a guide in South Africa. Did, did all of that around 2021 and yeah since then i've just kind of slowly been easing into the uh guiding working field uh you know working as an av tourism guide and um yeah so i've slowly started um taking clients out um freelance and also for um some of the different birding tour operators and um yeah it's been picking up within the last um couple of months really since the beginning of this year actually i've started doing stuff more closely with some of those companies like Burning Eco Tours and Burning Africa Tours. And uh, yeah, no, it's been um, it's been really, really good. And yeah, birding, uh, my own casual personal birding has been um, very, very cool since then as well. Um, yeah, just been obviously being based out in the Cape, spending most of my birding time in the Cape, but I've also done a few uh, trips up north um, to KZN. I was in KZN last year, December. I went up to go have a look at that crab plover that popped in at uh, Tanzini at Umlazi Nature Reserve. It was a very, very cool bird. That was a lifer for me. Yeah, I was also up in uh, Palabora area in June, July last year when the wood warbler showed up. That was another, that was a first for the subregion. 
that was also a very very fun trip um i was up in limpopo i think for about a week and a half two weeks um but yeah other than that i haven't been doing too much birding outside of the cape uh besides from uh two months ago three months ago i was uh in israel actually i did a trip up to israel like two weeks or so um casual birding trip with some family and friends of family and um yeah that's kind of like the summary of how the last uh <laughs> two years or so has been for me in terms of birding and uh yeah work related stuff something that i've always found quite interesting you know almost every young birder has this dream that when they when they leave school they're going to become a, a bird guide and i think there's these there's things that they probably believe right about becoming a uh, a bird guide and there's probably things that they probably will get a very rude awakening when they start to guide i've heard some real horror stories which we won't share because i know you are employed by companies but the the question i'm always interested in and the reason i asked this i remember there was a person who i know quite well that um, is in conservation and they made the statement that they they in terms of their career wise they that they, they deliberately chose to not focus on birds because they wanted to make sure that birding was their hobby and not their career and they said it can you know sometimes the line can get uh quite blurry so you know you obviously you've kept your passion for birding you've been guiding for quite a while i'm sure you've dealt with some difficult guests how 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 have you managed to keep your you know be a professional birder let me say that much be a professional birder taking people around taking guests around with all the pressures that come with that but at the same time, still keep your passion for birding on a on a hobby level. That's a great question, Adam. I think I I don't I don't actually particularly know how to answer it because I like you. I've actually heard that quite a lot growing up. Um, you know, you hear from friends and family friends and other birding friends even how other guides really kind of lose their passion for it um, as they you know, mature in, in the industry. And I don't know, I think it's just been, um, yeah, it's been very natural for me. Um, I've, I honestly, I haven't had uh, many very bad experiences. Um, one really comes to mind, but I've really thoroughly enjoyed nearly all of my clients um, and my experiences being out in the field with them. Yeah, I, it's, I don't really find it a drag at all. Granted, I am still relatively new to to the field but yeah it's not something that i've had to think about or really like you know force myself to okay now i have to go and take clients out and see you know to show them these birds which i've seen a million times it's it's never really become that for me um i enjoy every time i go to rails to see the rock jumpers you know um or betty's bay to see the penguins it's um i yeah, I love, I never get tired of seeing the same things over and over again. So I think that might have something to do with it. But um, yeah, it's, uh, if anything, it's really made me um, appreciate, or it's just made, put me in a very grateful position of like, wow, I have this passion for, for birding and wildlife and I actually have, you know, or I'm in the process of successfully turning it into my job. And um, I'm actually enjoying the process, you know. So yeah, it's it's been a very positive experience for me. I'll say that. Yeah, what's quite interesting is is that you know getting to know you over the years, I would probably uh, hope I'm getting this right. Describe you as probably more introverted by nature as opposed to extroverted. 
Um, and it's, you know, it's quite interesting because, uh, you know, in many ways, you're quite a private person. But, you know, as soon as you get out, then you start guiding people and start talking about what you're passionate about. It's almost like, you know, you bypass your, 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 almost your natural inclination as a person. And it's, it's amazing how that just, you know, sharing your passion with people, you know, even when I talk to you about birds and that it, you just come alive, it's like <laughs> you become a different person almost. And I think that's probably why you, you enjoy doing what you're doing, you know, maybe, you know, you know, being able to share um, something that you're so passionate about which, which, and what you're good at also. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Adam. I, I do think that it's, like you said, it's really just something that come, has come naturally to me. Um, and yes, I am more on the introverted side of things for sure. Um, I can't really handle big crowds for too long. Yeah, look, in terms of my clients, the majority of the, the tours that I've done up till this point, because I am so new um, to guiding, has been day tours, day trips. Um, and usually those are either for, you know, singletons or for couples. Uh, I haven't actually had a day trip that's been bigger than two people so far, um, or a, a client group that has been bigger than two people so far for a day trip. Obviously with longer trips, that's usually a bigger group and I have experienced that as well. Um, but yeah, as you said, I, I don't really think of it as, um, you know, stressful communicating with new people that that side of it doesn't really come out when I am guiding new people. I'm, I just kind of live in my passion and the, <laughs> and the, you know, being able to show people new things and things that they haven't experienced before or seen before and really seeing people, um, you know, you'll get those, those people who really, you can see them soaking it all in as you, you know, take them out throughout the day and, you really get, you know, when you see how much they are enjoying the day, I think that really um, feeds a lot of my, um, the drive behind why I am in guiding and why I love it, um, is really seeing people come alive, you know, the way that I feel like I come alive when I talk about it, when I show people it, it's, uh, yeah, I feel like um, it, it kind of feeds that, uh, the passion, you know, for me. So last time you were on the show, we did a uh, the scientific bird name challenge and you really rocked that. Today we're going to do an ID challenge and I was watching just before this recording, uh, watching a bit of uh, Jerry McClarkson thing, Who Wants to Be Millionaire? And there's that thing they say when they, you know, they phone a friend and they ask just to make sure that you haven't, you've got one of our representatives there so you can't Google the answers. Well, Josh, one thing I know, you're an honest person. So um, I've asked him, he's not going to be doing any Googling. He's not going <laughs> to get a book open. This is literally going to be, uh, this. I'm gonna, he does not know the birds we're going to throw at him. So what, he's, what I've asked him to do is he is going, I'm going to give him the name of a bird. He is going to describe that bird to the best of his ability. Now, the reason I know Josh is fantastic at this, if you um, go on any, almost any birding platform in South Africa, Josh is like, you know, the Facebook police, he's the guy like will go on and if you get a bird ID wrong, he'll like gently correct you. But like any, like anyone puts a bird and, and, and I want to say this all, with all respect and I, you probably have, but personally, I've had, I've, I've got a uh, Tyron Doll says something, this is the, this is a cool compliment. He doesn't throw compliments out a lot and this is a compliment he gave. He said, he said that in terms of bird IDs, he says you are probably his go-to person you are like the best person around bird ideas so um uh, we're gonna you. put that to the the test and this is like your whole like if you're looking for a guide for the western cape joshua is your man because you're gonna hear all about this in a moment so 
what I've asked Josh to do, he's going to tell us as much as he can about the bird, describe the features, describe um, how, how, you, how he would see that bird in the field and identify the bird. Now, something Josh said, and maybe you can just elaborate on this before we get into this, uh, it's something that you really, uh, what you said had a, spoke to me a lot. And you said this year, I said, you know, when, when people start birding, they often identify a specific detail like the supercilium or maybe call it the abra or the bull shape or whatever. But the more you bird, the more you spend time on the field, instead of seeing these individual details, you almost have the ability to see the bird holistically. Would Just explain that you spoke about that last time. Yeah, I think what I was just saying was that um, just speaking from how I think I learned um, how to identify different birds from when I was a kid, um, which was basically just from looking at photos um, in field guides and in books and on the internet and not really too much reading of like the descriptions that you'll see in the field guides, really just kind of, you know, taking in the photos and the images as you, as you look at them. Um, so I think from that, I got used to looking at birds kind of as like one holistic image instead of kind of dissecting it into the different distinguishing features or characteristics that make it that species. Um, so I think that's what, um, that's the subconscious method that I adopted when it came to identifying birds in the field because of how I did it, um, in, in books, you know, in literature. Um, and that's sort of worked for me, you know, um, up until this point, you know, obviously I think it, it's different when you, um, or it does become trickier when you do start venturing into say learning bird life from other countries, you know, and getting to know whole different families and things like that. Um, especially at like a later stage of life, which I'm at right now. Um, then you do sort of look at the finer details, you know, things that are very tricky to, to, to separate. Um, but for the most part, you know, I think looking at a bird as one complete image rather than looking at different features is, is a very valuable tool when it comes to, um, identifying birds for sure. So we're going to go for the first bird and this is a little bit of an easier one, but the reason I'm asking, this is one of those ones that a lot of people do get confused with. So, you know, chat about the ID features, distribution, whatever you can tell us about the bird, um, you can go for it. So the first bird is, like I said, an easier one to start with is a Cape Eagle Owl, a Cape Eagle Owl. Okay, cool. Um, so in terms of Cape Eagle Owls, they are... Um, obviously most often confused with spotted eagle owls. Um, I have seen quite a lot of um, <laughs> photographs on Facebook of, you know, browner colored spotted eagle owls with slightly orangey eyes and people are very quick to assume that they're Cape eagle owls. Um, so just obvious, I guess, as field guides would read, um, differences between the two are Cape eagle owls are noticeably larger, not dr dramatically so, but they are larger than spotted eagle owls with uh, much more browny or orangey brown um, hues to their plumage um, instead of greys. And they have very, very bright, uh, deep orange eyes. Um, and they also live quite importantly, their habitat is specific. They're usually found in very rocky mountainous areas, the high mountains, the Drakensberg, the Cape Bold Mountains, um, 
those are usually the areas where you you find them um so typically you won't really find you know find them in the middle of a suburb or far away from any form of mountains those are always going to be spotted eagles just about um but yeah uh if you kind of just sum all of those id features up into one bird you look at the habitat um, and also their calls, their calls are quite different. So spotted eagle owls, um, kind of have this, um, sort of a higher pitched hoot, which kind of falls in pitch, you know, it descends, um, and Cape eagle owls, their hoots are deeper and it's like a much shorter sort of staccato hoot, um, often like two or three notes at a time. Um, and I also actually came to discover that there's no overlap between their calls. So if you hear the call of a Cape Eagle owl calling in the distant mountains somewhere, you know, you're in the, you're in the car clue, for example, or not the car clue, the mid Midlands or something, you know, and you hear a Cape Eagle owl calling in the distance. You don't have to wonder if it's a Cape Eagle owl. It will be a Cape Eagle owl for sure. Um, so yeah, that's kind of how I would say you, you identify them. Um, one thing that I've noticed, which, I don't think it's a hard and fast rule, um, but just something that I've noticed with Cape Eagle Owls is that their um, facial disc or their face tends to be noticeably paler than um, kind of the surroundings of the head, uh, which you don't often see in spotties. Spotties, you'll usually see their face and their whole head looks quite uniformly gray, uniformly toned gray. Um, with Cape Eagle Owls, their face will kind of look creamy, like palish, like buffy, creamy. And um, it'll contrast with all of the dark blotching um, kind of surrounding the face, like on the top of the head, the neck, and um, yeah, um, so to speak. Um, and that's also where people will mention all the dark blotching that you'll see on the Cape Eagle Owl's chest, um, which you can see on Spotted Eagle Owl's, but it stands out more with capes because of the pale face. So yeah, sum all of that up. That's how you identify Cape Eagle Owl. So I think a big thing there is where, you know, you went to the beginning where you spoke about the eye color, which is an ID feature. But, you know, I think that probably has a a, a bigger conversation, not just about a, a Cape Eagle Owl versus a Spotted Eagle Owl. I think, like, it has a lot broader thing because a lot of times people almost identify a species based on a specific feature. And, and again, that kind of goes, instead of looking for, for different things you know not just saying okay the eye colors is therefore i'm looking at a, a cape eagle owl and i think it's that number one and then i think it was nate who spoke about these soft field markings which is the things that are not necessarily on the bird as such but you spoke about that very interesting and uh, is that the 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 habitat is a big is a big thing also so i think it's you're not just getting stuck on one feature and saying, well, because it's got this color eyes, um, therefore it's this bird or whatever. And I think that goes beyond just a, uh, a Cape Eagle Owl. I think it's, uh, you know, that that's a good hint for, or good tip for a bird identification as a whole. Yes. Yeah. And honestly, that, that point right there is something that I do um, advocate. And I do, I mean, I chat to my birding friends about it. You know, the whole thing of, like you said, looking at one feature on a bird and defining the whole, the species of the bird by that one feature. Oftentimes, and especially in cases like this, when you have two very similar species, um, where one or two features can overlap, you really need to look at multiple features um, and you use that combination of features rather than a single feature to identify the bird. And it's that combination that actually um, is what makes it distinctive. 
Yeah, from the other similar species. Where does that help? And I mean, a good example was I saw someone put a photo, put a photo on Facebook the other day of a flock of wattled starlings that they saw, and obviously they were out of breeding plumage. They didn't have those nice wattles and that kind of thing. And uh, straight away I looked at them. I knew they were wattled starlings, and I looked at the shape of the bird. I could see they were starling based in the shape, and then maybe just by seeing wattled starlings uh, quite often, uh, you could see it was a wattled starling. But you know, in terms of I think one thing people struggle with, and maybe how, how would you, how would you give advice around this? For example, like like a wattle starling, where in and out of breeding plumage is very different. Uh, Southern red bishop, you know, there's different. There's a whole lot of species that you can kind of nail down that bird when it's in breeding plumage. But as soon as the breeding plumage is gone, you're looking at a totally different bird. And I think a lot of newer birders, that's the struggle. And you know, what what advice would you give to people that are listening to you know? kind of nail that down and, and to bridge that gap between the the breeding and the non-breeding plumage? Well, look, I think that's a that's a completely different topic of conversation. The breeding versus non-breeding plumage or yeah. I think that's people are or shall I say, people take more note of birds when they're in the, in their breeding plumage. Like if if a if a bird species say like a southern red bishop, you know, or a wattle starling has a, a brightly colored extravagant breeding plumage and then their non-breeding plumage is very plain nondescript um you know new new birders or or i mean yeah newer birders uh, are more likely to kind of just focus on that brightly colored breeding plumage and then they'll say okay i'll just identify it when i see that you know that um uh, plumage of the bird you know they won't really pay too much mind to the non-breeding plumage and then if they are faced with a one, you know, non-breeding bishop, widow, whatever it may be, they'll be like, oh, okay, whatever. They all look the same. You know, we don't really have to worry about that. Not to say that they are, not to say that such things are easy to separate. You know, bishop, I think female bishops and widow birds are some of the trickiest things that we as South African birders have to deal with in terms of ID challenges. But um, there definitely are ways to, um, at least with most of the species there. Um, but I mean, something like wattle starling, I just think that, I think non-breeding wattle starlings confuse people because they, uh, I think because field guides, first of all, portray the um, brightly colored, you know, breeding plumage birds with their crazy heads. And oftentimes, you know, you'll just see kind of the head of a non-breeding bird illustrated, like in the corner. I think that <laughs> I have seen that in a few field guides. Um, but I mean, I won't put the blame on, you know, field guides. Uh, it's not their fault entirely. Um, but yeah, people just look at this brightly colored head of this bird and I'm like, oh, that's going to be obvious in the field. And then as they're swiping through the pictures, they'll see all the plain looking non-breeding birds and they won't really pay them too much mind because in their minds, they're like, oh yes, this brightly colored, you know, bird, this is what it is. So when I see that, I'll know that those are wattle starlings. Um, it could even be that people forget that bottle starlings actually don't look like that all the time. You know, people forget maybe that, oh, bottle starlings aren't, um, they, they don't look like that all the time. You know, they actually do molt into a breeding plumage. They might think that, oh, that's just, they might think, oh, this is the male's plumage and that's the female plumage when in actual fact, it's the breeding versus the non-breeding plumage. Um, so then when you do get a flock of non-breeding wattle starlings, which nine times out of 10 wattle starlings are in non-breeding plumage because they're actually nomadic birds. They only breed, you know, when there's, um, in savannah habitats, uh, after there's been good rain in the area and there's lots of insects around for them to feed on, 
and then they'll kind of breed on mass, typically like the like the quilias do. And only in those sort of environments will you see the males with their yellow and black heads and the big wattles. Um, but most of the time, if you just are burning and and they can show up in, in very different habitats, you know, I mean, we'll see them down here in the fainbos as well. You'll see a small flock of them flying through and there's no yellow, black, there's no big wattles. They're just these pale, like sandy gray birds with black wings and white rumps. And you're like, what are these things? So that's most of the time they look like that. So yeah, I think it's just people not really being used to the actual biology of that bird specifically, you know. Yeah, what was interesting, we were getting them all around in Mamsantoti. I mean, like literally getting them in the middle of the residential area. And it was quite interesting that, you know, we don't always get them, but uh, I think it was last year or the year before, they seemed to be quite, and they were, they were quite big flocks. It was quite interesting. It wasn't uh, it wasn't a regular species, nor normally around Durban area, you'd have to kind of go and go into the Midlands and that, but it was quite, and, and people seem to be recording them all over Durban. So, um the thing, just going to say this quickly for listeners, uh, Josh is a fantastic guest and I could really talk for a long time with Josh, but we are quite constrained with time in terms of load shedding, which is coming in 20 minutes time. So um, if we rush through some of the stuff, it's not because uh, I didn't uh, want, I wanted to chat longer to Josh. Um, honestly, I think you can let me know. You can drop some, um, <laughs> send us an email on info at theburnlife.com if you'd like to give Josh on the show more because I think Josh is quite always quite a cool, always an interesting guy and if you've got in, uh, questions about identification you know send them in and we can maybe do another episode for next season with Josh and um, try and twist his arm to come on next season and we can talk about bird identification and ask questions he yeah but let's go to your challenge bird number two and this might be a little bit trickier but I don't think it's going to be that that tricky for you but let's just go for it boss button quail Oh, that's easy. I mean, you don't exactly flush any other kind of button quail out of the fan boss. So, <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's if you're walking through any particular fan boss and you flush something that is clearly a button quail, then uh, chances are it's a fan boss button quail. <laughs> Unless you'd like me to explain what a button quail looks like when it flies. Well, button quails are quite cool. And I mean, I think, I think with button quails is, you know, you obviously get your, your common button quail and your blank button quail. I mean, they're quite, you know, obviously... Again, I think that's uh, you know in your in your humor, <laughs> you are you, you kind of have a good thing again saying you know that that idea of habitat is very important and um, but you know button quails can't you know they, they can be quite tricky to you know identify. But again, I probably would go back to I mean you, it would would, be, would go down a lot to habitat again. I mean like your black rump button quail, your common button quail, obviously goes back down to where you find the bird where you see the bird will, will probably lean you in that in the right direction straight away yeah i know exactly because i mean look with regards to button quails i mean common button quails are not really found anywhere close to where you get fenwurst button quails and obviously black rums aren't so i know that those two can be a struggle in kzn um, because you will get areas where you get both species occurring you know, alongside one another. So I do understand that that um, that case. But with regards to the fainbos button quails, like they, yeah, I mean, first of all, they're only found in the fainbos, and also specifically, like you'll get them, yeah, I mean, okay, like specific microhabitats within the fainbos, like very flat, sort of grassy patches that are relatively short, not necessarily grassy, but with grass interspersed within the fainbos, you'll get fainbos button quails, and. Um, yeah, the nearest cape, um, I mean, cape, sorry, the nearest common button quails are a, a couple hundred k's away, I think, or more than that. I actually don't know where their 
common button curl distribution sort of ends. I know that they are rarities even in the Eastern Cape even. So yeah, you don't ever really need to worry about um, overlap with those two. So yeah, you're walking through the, the vein boss and you flush something that is clearly a button curl. You know what a button curl looks like when it's flushed, then yeah, chances are that's what it is. So get used to what a button quail looks like and you should nail down the ID, hopefully. Yeah, no, I mean, button quails, they have that very, uh, I mean, you know, a tiny little game bird, small, um, very like flappy whirring wings. They never fly very far. They're not like typical quails, like common quails and harlequin quails, which take off and fly very fast and very directly far away from you. And then they land. The button quails will usually fly like a couple of meters and then drop down onto the ground. So yeah, it's, um, yeah. And you'll usually be able to catch, I mean, with Fainbos Bunkles, you'll usually be able to catch a little bit of their plumage as well as they fly. They have that nice, like, gray and black, like, mottling on their parts, a little bit of a yellowy buff tinge to their underparts. Um, yeah. So, yeah, that's how that's how you do Fainbos Bunkles. As always, the Birding Life is proud to be associated with Sarovsky Optic, one of the world's leading producers of binoculars, monoculars, and spotting scopes as well as the Bird Lasso bird logging app. Spot, plot, play a part. Download and install the app to play your part in social conservation. One of the ways that you can help us to keep putting out the content that we are releasing is by supporting our online shop. We sell optics, books, Westerman's products, and a whole lot more. Check out the shop on our website, www.thebirdinglife.com. If you need any help with any of the products, please don't hesitate to email us on info at thebirdinglife.com. So you mentioned earlier that you did a trip earlier this year, a couple weeks ago, a month or so ago, you went to Israel. Now, I think Israel must be one of the coolest places to visit as a birder. Um, and again, not just because of the birds you get to see. Um, obviously, it's a place which there's culture, there's history, there's religion, there's a whole lot of things that are kind of thrown together that I think just make Israel this fantastic country to visit. So tell us about your birding experiences in Israel. Yeah, that was a wonderful trip. Um, I, it was, again, it was a birding trip, but it was actually technically a family trip as well, because I went with uh, my mom and her friend who lives in Israel and her, her friend's son who actually lives down here in Cape Town. And the four of us basically did this trip together and it was quite all encompassing. Um, granted, I, I was given the task of planning the itinerary, so I was sure to make it quite all-encompassing <laughs> in terms of the bird life of the, the country. So we, yeah, we basically traversed from north to south. We started in Jerusalem, which is more or less in the middle of the country, and then we uh, worked our way down the uh, western side through the Negev, which is essentially the desert area of western Israel going all the way down to Eilat, which is um, the very southernmost point of Israel on the Red Sea. Um, very popular uh, tourist city, that, Eilat. And then that's also, Eilat is where the, um, interna I believe it's the International Birding Research and Education Center. I think that's that's what it is. But basically the Eilat Bird Park is there and that's where they uh, host the uh, Champions of the Flyway every year, which is obviously that's the very big competition, which they have birding teams from around the world to come and um, compete, kind of like on a big day sort of thing, where they all go around the Eilat area, try to get as many birds as they can at the day. And it's all to raise awareness and, um, and the teams are sponsored and that competition is to raise awareness for uh, the 
uh, protection of the migration of birds between Africa and um, Europe because um, Israel is essentially a flyway area. Flyway is a region where migrating birds kind of get bottlenecked over a very thin piece of land because most birds prefer to migrate over land rather than water. And obviously between Africa and Europe, there's the expanse of the Mediterranean. Um, a lot of birds will migrate, just kind of shoot straight across the Mediterranean. You will get that. But the majority do tend to get funneled, um, you know, going from Egypt into Israel. Um, and then, they, you know, first port they or port they get to in Israel would be um, Eilat. And then they'll go up through Israel, Lebanon, into um, Turkey, and then spread, you know, across um, Europe and also Asia going east. Um, you, the, a similar thing does happen on the west side of the Mediterranean, I believe, um, between Morocco and Spain, along the the between the Strait of or in the Strait of Gibraltar, I should say. But um, I think it's less dramatic than on the uh, on the Israel side, on the eastern side of the Mediterranean. Um, so we were in Eilat uh, in Israel during the exact time of Champions of the Flyway. So you know we visited the Eilat Bird Park and we got to see the Ringing Center and all the many many teams it's actually quite a quite an experience for you know birders like us who i mean we we have a pretty active thriving birding community in south africa but i mean walking into the birding a lot birding a lot the a lot birding park um and just seeing like scopes everywhere was quite an experience you know like seeing tens and of hundreds of people walking around with scopes over their shoulders was really quite amazing um, so yeah, I've got to chat to some nice people there, um, a few of the like American teams and, um, yeah, that was very, very amazing. And then being able to witness the migration of the birds as well, which we did over the course of the whole trip that wasn't specific to Eilat. I mean, just driving from Jerusalem down into the Negev, um, uh, like passing by the mountains there, seeing like hun literally hundreds of raptors, you know, you'll get these groups of like hundreds of black kites and common buzzers coming over mixed in with step eagles and then you start driving along you know the pylons going through the farmlands and then on every like fourth or fifth pylon there's a short-toed snake eagle sitting you know and um really an amazing experience seeing that many you know raptors you know like birds of prey in one place which was amazing um and that was a theme throughout the whole trip um just looking up and seeing raptors flying over you in in one direction you know and with sm smaller numbers of other raptors as well, pallid harriers, um, western marsh harriers, yeah, falcons, kestrels, uh, common kestrels, lesser kestrels. Um, yeah, it was very, very, very cool. Especially for birds like coming from South Africa. I mean, we are essentially at the bottom of the, of the, the southernmost tip of the migration route of a lot of those raptors. I mean, we all are quite familiar with common buzzards. We see lots of them in summer. Um, and you know, in winter, it's like, where do they all go? And it was cool for me being there. And it's like, oh, this is where they all go. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, from from Eilat, we made our way north um, up to the Dead Sea. We had a night on the Dead Sea. And from there, we spent five nights uh, in the very north of the country, uh, on, on the Sea of Galilee, essentially. Um, we just spent some time exploring that area, doing a bit of historical sightseeing as well. We went up to the very northeastern corner of Israel, Mount Hermonit, which, I mean, Mount Hermon, sorry. We went to Mount Hermonit as well, but Mount Hermon, which is the highest mountain in Israel, did a little bit of um, alpine birding, which is cool. 
And after that, came back down to Jerusalem. So yeah, I think over the whole course of the trip, I got about um, 200 and two th- lifers, something like that. can't remember the exact number, but it was in that vicinity. Um, and yeah, really, um, I mean, sorry, not not 200. Uh, I, I was 200 species. Sorry, Adam, you can kind of just cut that part out. I was 200 species, not 200 um, lifers. <laughs> so, so yeah, so I'll, I'll say that again. I'll say that again. So over the course of the whole trip, I got uh, about 200 species which uh, included about 100 uh, lifers. So essentially half of the birds I saw on that trip were lifers, which was very, very cool. I haven't done too much birding outside of South Africa. So it was very much my, I think my second proper experience of birding within Europe, which was very, very, uh, very cool. Um, The other nice thing about Israel birding um, is that it's a a good country to see some very, sort of tricky Arabian species, like, um, you know, species which are not very easy to see in other countries, um, mainly because those countries are not as easy to access as Israel. So things like black scrub robin, um, Sinai rose finch, uh, desert owl. I made a specific mission to go see desert owl, which was really, really cool. You know, things like that, They which are essentially Arabian Middle Eastern specialities. Um, Israel is quite a good country to go see those birds. So... Yeah, that was really, really quite amazing seeing those as well. Yeah, so one of my other highlights was actually getting quite a few owl species on that trip. So as I mentioned, we got the desert owl. Um, we saw pharaoh eagle owl. We saw um, Eurasian eagle owl, Eurasian scops owl, um, and little owl. So we did get five um, five owl species. And there were still others which were potential, which I didn't manage to get. Long-eared owl and tawny owl. Um, but yeah, another time. <laughs> And, um, yeah, the water birding was also really, really amazing. Um, just seeing like a completely different variety of birds to what we're used to, you know, seeing, uh, uh, gosh, like all the gulls, the Armenian gulls, um, and all the ducks, the, the ducks were amazing, especially in the North, um, because a lot of their ducks are migratory. So seeing giant flocks of, you know, Northern shovelers, which are vagrants for us, you know, um, and, other things like a common common shell duck, um, ferruginous duck, gargany, northern pintail, Eurasian teal. Yeah, lots lots of waterfowl, which is very cool. And also seeing our waders basically migrating through, most of them um, kind of in, in breeding plumage or coming into breeding plumage. You know, you'd see at, at all the, the salt works and the pans, you'd see um, lots of common red shanks, um, green sandpipers, common sandpipers, little stints, common ringed plovers. Um, and then you'd see them next to waders, which we classify as very big rarities, you know, like spotted red shanks and um, Kentish plovers um, and things like that. So, yeah, that was interesting, uh, an interesting dichotomy, seeing things which are very common for us next to things which are very rare for us as well. And, uh, yeah, I think those are the, the majority of the, the very big highlights that I can think of. Um, and, yeah, it was, like I said, over a period of two weeks we were there. So we covered the majority of the country. The only area we didn't really visit was the Mediterranean coastline. Um, but there wasn't really too much for us to do on that side, um, given what we wanted to do on this trip. So yeah, no, all in all, it was an incredible trip and seeing, seeing interesting mammals as well, like, um, Nubian Ibex and, um, Dorcas gazelle, mountain gazelle, wild, uh, European wild boar and, um, 
yeah, seeing all those sorts of mammals as well, which was very, very cool. Oh, what an amazing, amazing experience. It's something that I think is definitely worth doing. I think, you know, not just, again, from the birding side, I think just also from the countryside, visit, being able to visit such a, uh important important country in in the world so we've got like five minutes to go till escom takes our electricity away or escom takes your electricity away that took ours away earlier right. um so i'm gonna i'm gonna pose one more bird uh to you which uh and I, I think the experienced birders will be like yeah yeah we know what this is but i know a lot of birders do struggle and i've seen this is a is one of those species that very often gets confused with another species that i know you'll probably mention when you chat about this but Buffy Pippet. Buffy Pippet. Um, okay, cool. So Buffy Pippet, I think, yeah, look, when it comes to Pippets, I always uh, compare everything to African Pippet because African Pippet is the, I guess you would say the golden standard for us in terms of Pippets because it's our most common and widespread Pippet. And yeah, I do generally see that it's those four Pippet species, African, Nicholson's, Buffy and Plainbacked that are... I, oh, five, sorry, and mountain. I guess I tend to not associate mountain with those four because it's habitat specific and season specific. So people tend to not have too many ID problems with that one. But the other four, you'll often see them getting confused. So when it comes to Buffy Puppet, um, first of all, in terms of habitat, they actually are quite, I guess you would say like a dry savanna species. So you would, you'll often see them in overgrazed land, um, in the, kind of like the Northern and Western parts of the country, Kalahari-esque, you know, type of habitat, um, um, overgrazed areas in acacia, um, like low acacia woodland, um, not, not woodland, but, um, plains, yeah, with the, with like stunted acacia growth. I think of like Kimberley, you know, Makala National Park or Marrick Game Farm. Those are areas where, you know, Buffy Puppet would thrive in terms of that habitat. In terms of physical appearance, um, it's a very large puppet. I say very, you know, um, loosely. It's all, like I said, um, in in perspective to, uh, in proportion, I should say, to, Buffy, to African Puppet. Um, so it's a tall puppet, um, large in size and yeah, it's plumage does tend to be quite buffy. One thing that it and plain backed puppet do, which is quite a, a useful ID feature is they tend to wag their tail very loosely. Um, you do see that as well with puppets like Nicholson's, but never really as pronounced as you see it as in Buffy and, uh, uh plain backed. And in terms of Buffy and plain backed versus each other. So plain backed is a smaller puppet and it's got a, quite a different color scheme. So plain backed, you'll get more of a darker, like cooler grayer colored back um, with less of those buffy tones and it's also kind of a, got a dumpier shape to it so it doesn't have that like very tall kind of elongated appearance that you see with buffy puppet both species have no streaks on their backs which automatically eliminates um, african puppet um, and they have very plain looking faces they don't have the very bold like contrasting black and white face stripes which you'll see on african puppet and um yeah, the other thing is that Buffy Puppet has a pink bill base, uh, whereas African and Plainback will have yellow bill bases. Nicholson's can vary. Nicholson's it typically has a pink bill base, but you can get them in yellow as well. Um, usually you get Nicholson's in very different habitat, like rocky, rocky, hilly areas. Yeah, sorry. I know that was kind of jumping all over the place in terms of different puppet species, but yeah, basically large puppet, tall, kind of low acacia growth, you know, um, or flat, um, 
plains with low acacia growth, Kalahari-esque type habitat, buffy plumage, plain face, unmarked, no streaks on the back. Yeah, and a bit of tail wagging to go along with it. Yeah. Well, well done on the bird the bird challenge. So we're going to do this very quickly. I don't normally do this as quick, but uh, we've got like probably one minute to go, less than one minute to go. So I'm just going to say, Josh, it's been awesome chatting to you again. Eskom is going to cut this chat short, but hopefully we can do this chat again soon. So thanks for being on the show. Quick, <laughs> quick goodbye. I really appreciate it, man. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Adam. Yeah, we must definitely do this again. Um, hopefully when we're not too rushed, but yeah, it was great being on and yeah. Um, Chat to you soon again. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this week's show. We really appreciate your support. If you have any comments or feedback on any of the episodes, feel free to drop us an email on info at theburninglife.com or send us a message on any of our social media platforms. We would love to get to know you better. So until next time, be blessed and happy birding.